have life, we are to continually be learning and growing in truth. And you know, Paul never stopped learning and growing in the Lord. There are so many important life-changing truths presented in this chapter that not only do we need to learn, but we really need to apply. And as I prepared this, the Lord has obviously dealt with me in all of these points because I fail greatly in all of them. So if anything impacts you, know that you're not alone. We must learn from this chapter. We see to be in harmony with others, have a gentle spirit, be anxious for nothing, pray with thankfulness, um, bring your thoughts captive so that we think about the things that are true and honorable. And throughout the life of Paul, he had so many experiences. Some were good and some were incredibly stressful and, and difficult from which he learned to be content, whether he had a little or a lot. Paul also learned to express gratitude for kindness done to him. And he had learned that God is the one to supply all of the needs of the life of a generous, obedient believer. So there's so much practical in this chapter for us to be reminded of and apply to how we live. And it's a practical chapter, and most of you are probably very familiar with it and could probably quote many of the verses from this chapter. But we're all students together, and we need to be reminded of truth because we don't want to let a week or an hour or a month or a year go by that we're not repenting of disobeying the truths that we're being taught. So we're going to look at Paul's instructions to the beloved Philippians, who he really dearly loved. And he begins with saying, stand firm together. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So as you know, there were no chapter divisions. I mean, when Paul wrote a letter, it was just an ongoing letter. But Paul begins this section with the word therefore, which means what is about to say and build on is based on what he has just said. Because their citizenship is in heaven, uh, which he has just said, and because uh, of the amazing inheritance that awaits believers when Christ returns, because believers' bodies will be made like Christ and glorified, he says, always be steadfast because of these future glories that are theirs and by way of application, ours as well. Notice the deep love and affection he has for this church when he calls them beloved brethren. He said, you're my joy and my crown. Paul sincerely longed to see them, but Paul may have been in difficult circumstances being a prisoner of Rome, but he really did have joy from the people he loved. Paul saw this church as his trophy, proof that his service for the Lord had not been in vain. Just as an athlete works really hard to win or receive a crown, so these people were Paul's crown. Then Paul exhorts him to stand firm in the Lord, just like a soldier stands firm in the, in the battle. Uh, so Paul exhorts him, never move from being loyal to Christ and to the gospel message. It would seem some of these believers and this church have forgotten who their real enemy is, and it is Satan who is behind discord, conflict, and division. So let's get your eyes on Jesus, and the petty differences will not be such a big issue. Notice Paul says, in this way, they are to stand firm. So now he's going to say, show us what is this way. 
live in harmony is his first point. Paul specifically names these two women who were a part of this church who were at odds with each other. The joy this church had brought to Paul was now also bringing him sadness because of this. We aren't told about the conflict. It's obviously not doctrinal because there was nothing like that to address. It was a personal issue. This is the only place in time these two women's names are mentioned. Wouldn't you just hate for all eternity to have your name in scripture as the two who couldn't get along? <laughs> they were both dedicated to serving the Lord. Paul didn't get involved by taking sides about their dis dispute. Their disunity was bringing harm to their testimony and really hurting the church there at Philippi. So Paul exhorts them to live in harmony in the Lord. In other words, set aside your differences. Be of the same mind, just what he showed us earlier in this letter. Go back to what Paul wrote in chapter 2. Don't insist on your own way. And then Paul enlists the help of other believers in the church, specifically a true companion who everybody would have known. His name means yoke fellow. And Paul asked him and some others to help these women, kind of a play on his name, be yoked together again. They had served side by side. Uh, with Paul, but now they are divided. So after all, we are accountable to one another and we ought to do what we can to help people when they need conflicts resolved. Apparently human pride and stubbornness had caused these two ladies to forget what the mind of Christ is like. So verse three reveals that these two ladies had helped Paul serving the Lord. They've been co-laborers, they've been a team, along with many others whose names are written in the book of life. These ladies had gotten off track, serving in whatever capacity in their own interests and conflicts came between the two. As I said, a rather humbling thing to be called out publicly in a letter, <clears throat> but it was Paul's love for them and his church that caused him to address the particular problem because they had failed to deal with it themselves. So what a good reminder to us that even a mature, faithful, uh, diligent, committed believer can fall into the sin of self-centeredness and not laying down your rights. Then Paul goes on to tell us how we can have peace. And I know we all struggle with the ugly sin of worry. And so much of our worry is about problems that do not yet exist and haven't happened. However, there are also worries about what really is real and really is happening in our lives, pressures that threaten to overwhelm us. And in these few verses, we are commanded, it's not a suggestion, we are commanded to not worry. <clears throat> I know we all long to have that peace in our hearts and our minds presented to us, and really what this is is a prescription to have that peace. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. To be anxious and to worry comes from the Greek word, which means to divide the mind. So when we worry, we are pulled in different directions. We are distracted. We are torn in our thoughts. And the key to victory over worry truly is in our thought life. And Paul's going to get very specific about that in verses 7 and 8. So the key is how we think and what we think, what we fill our minds with, that will determine whether we have victory over worry or not. So Paul clearly presents to us numerous ways to respond 
and when pressures come, anxiety comes, and threatens to just have a spin off into a world of fear and worry. His first thing he tells us to do is rejoice in the Lord always. Paul repeats it twice for emphasis. How is it possible to rejoice always? When the job is lost, when there's a terrible diagnosis of a disease, when a loved one dies, can we truly be expected by God to rejoice even in the midst of pain and tears? And the answer is yes, because the circumstances may be tragic, but we are not commanded to rejoice in the circumstances, but rather to rejoice in the Lord always. Such an amazing truth that believers are safe and secure in the Lord. <clears throat> he is working together everything for good to those that love him. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. And he has whatever circumstance you find yourself in his complete and sovereign control and plan and a purpose for it. <clears throat> we can rejoice in our security that Christ has provided, even if everything is falling apart. It is a choice of our will. We may lose everything this world has to offer as Job experienced, but if we are his child, we have everything we need to survive life and have his presence with us. Ladies, we cannot have peace in our hearts if we don't rejoice in the Lord. If your knowledge of God's word is small, <clears throat> if you don't meditate on his glorious attributes, you will not have right thinking to be able to rejoice. Because the focus has to be him and his character. So instead, we often are just tempted to be annoyed with God that he allowed this to happen in our lives. He could have changed this. Why did you allow this? But we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Then he says, yield your rights. In verse 5, that we should have a gentle spirit. Make it be known to all men. And the word gentle is, is hard to translate from Greek into English. It has the idea of... Uh, being willing to yield your personal rights, to be considerate, to be gentle towards others. And the only way to have peace and have victory over worry is that you cannot be fighting everybody and insisting that you have to have your own way. We live in an unfair, unjust world, and you can spend the bulk of your day, at least the part of it you're driving, um, being exasperated and angry and using up your energy <laughs> Uh, with everyone who mistreats you or is unjust. This forbearing spirit that we are to have as his children is to be known by all who know us. We are to gradu uh, graciously yield our rights to others. But what if someone takes advantage of you? What if they exploit you? Paul offers us hope that we can endure a little bit longer, reminding us the Lord is near. So obviously the Lord is near a believer in that he indwells us. <laughs> In the context, though, it would seem to also include the idea that the Lord is near in his return. <clears throat> so he's reminding us, in light of his return, whatever the disagreement is, uh, it is so irrelevant and such a waste of time and energy in the light of his return. If you started each day by reminding yourself that Jesus may return today, at any moment, then you will not have as great a concern about winning an argument or losing that money because your mind is on Christ and your future in heaven. And the victory that we're going to have over worry is going to be seen when we rejoice in the Lord and when we yield our personal rights. And Paul goes on to say, 
Be anxious for nothing. Notice it's a command. Uh, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Because it's a command, when we break this command by worrying, the truth is we sin against God. And this is just as much a sin as lying or cheating or adultery or any other sin. We must not make excuses for this sin and simply blame it on my temperament or that's how my family was. When I worry, when you worry, in essence, it really is a slap in God's face because what we're really thinking is, I can't trust you and I can't believe your word. It's a denial of scripture. I mean, you can say you believe that the Bible is God's word, you can sing it, you can memorize it and quote it, and yet, when, worry, when we worry, the truth is, we're not believing it. We're not, we're worrying. Is God going to do what he promised? Will he fulfill all of his word to his, uh, his children? Jesus addresses this sin in that very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 6, where he reminds them, you have a loving heavenly father who knows how many hairs are on your head, who knows when every little sweet bird drops to the ground. Our needs and our concerns are his responsibility. We are to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and God will take care of the details of our life. <clears throat> the only way to be cured from worry is to trust that you have a loving Heavenly Father you can depend on. We are to bring our burden to him. Nothing's too little, nothing's too insignificant. This is the supplication, the sharing of very specific needs that you have, and just sit down and verbalize them all to him. You may say that you pray about this and then you are still filled with worry, but notice it isn't the praying, but it says it's the trusting. It's trusting God to handle the request <clears throat> that you just brought to him. The requests that we bring to him are to include thanksgiving. In other words, we are to be thankful because we know there is nothing too difficult for him, that he loves us infinitely, in unconditionally. Nothing's too hard for him to accomplish. The, the idea really is, do you believe what the truth of Romans 8, 28 and 29? He is working everything together for good to those that love him, to conform us to the image of his son. He is, as 1 Corinthians 10, 13 declares that God is faithful and will provide a way of escape. We're in really tempting situations. <clears throat> Passage after passage in God's word gives us reason to have hope and assurance that God will do what he says. When we trust the Lord to handle our problems, like 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you, then something amazing and unexplainable happens. His peace will guard our hearts and minds. And you've all experienced this if you know the Lord. It's just that it's not always continuous. It's an experience and then it's gone. So it's something we want to put into practice moment by moment. Like a soldier standing guard to protect our minds, so is the peace of God that watches over our hearts and our thoughts. That doesn't mean that heartache goes away, that trials end, or that you're crying, tears of pain, but your mind will be guarded from those anxious, fearful thoughts of anxiety and worry. This experience transcends human understanding. It can be experienced, it can't be explained. 
This is the truth taught throughout all of scripture, really. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. So that his name represents all of his attributes. The righteous run into him and are safe. And the idea of the word safe is uh, set up on high, out of harm's way. When we journal, I think it's a great way to look back at times in your life when you were struggling with the sin of worry, how God was ever going to resolve this nightmare you found yourself in. And you can see as you review how God delivered you, how he worked things out in ways you could have never imagined. And it just reminds you he's been faithful in the past. He will be faithful today and tomorrow as well. He gave you peace before, he can do it again. We not, may not be able to understand it, but as I said, we can experience it. So, ladies, when you find your mind drifting to a place of fear and worry about the future or anything else, you have a choice what you're going to do at that point. I mean, the thoughts we can't help, the thought comes, <gasps> what if this happens? But are you going to let it sit there and start dwelling on it and thinking about it? and being filled with anxiety about it. This passage tells us what we are to do. The question is, will you obey? Will you rejoice in the Lord? Start thinking, okay, this is what I know about the Lord. I'm gonna rejoice in him. Are you gonna yield your personal rights or are you gonna to continue to have a fighting spirit with everybody who crosses your path or does things you don't like? Trust the Lord to deal with the situation. This is what we have just learned from this inspired passage in God's word. Now Paul's going to give further truth that really helps to have this peace rule in our hearts. He says to meditate or think correctly. It really is the key. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So this is what we are to be thinking on. If we are not to have anxious thoughts, then we should be thinking thoughts that honor the Lord. I hope you realize that the sin of worry does become a habitual way of thinking. When you continue and you continue, this is the direction you continue. You have to repent and stop and put into practice what Paul tells us here. The only way to get rid of sinful thoughts and the habits of worry is to replace it with right thinking. That's my little screen there. That's... A squirrel who realized he was nuts, but as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, is what the Word of God tells us. In other words, what you think about is going to determine what you believe, what you feel, what you do. When I worry, I know I'm thinking all the wrong things. And when our thoughts are wrong, they lead to having wrong attitudes, wrong, everybody in the house is, becomes uh, the victim of your bad thoughts and your worry and uh, feelings go astray. We're commanded in Romans 12 to, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing our minds. And Paul is telling all believers that we need to meditate or dwell or think carefully. So it really is a mental discipline to actually reflect on these types of things. As a side note, I don't believe in any other age since the church was formed that any other church age has had the resources at their fingertips that we have. With the push of a button, an iPad, a computer, a cell phone, you have thousands of messages at your, disposable, at, at your disposal that will directly impact what you're struggling with. If you will take the time to touch them, look them up, and listen to them. So that's what will help you change how you're thinking. 
uh, we had the freedom to have that anytime. When I, my kids were little, I, there were two programs I always listened to on the radio. It was 10 and 10.30, so that was it. I didn't have any options at a better time of day. But I needed to hear that word in the day so I would think better in the day with little kids at home. But in truth, we can, if we take advantage of it, we'll benefit. But if we're too busy, and I can't take an hour to listen to a message on what I'm struggling on, then that's how we choose to make use of our time. We are all accountable for the choices we make to use our time. So what occupies how you think? What's mostly in your day, in your thought life? Paul gives us great clarity. He says, think on what's true. So this means it's real, it's genuine, it's factual. So let's face it, we can all have overactive imaginations that cause us to have thoughts that are incredibly, people we love are dead and buried, they're crashing, terrorists have murdered them, you know, the mind goes on and on. Jesus clearly stated that each day, ladies, has enough trouble of its own. So we don't have to borrow trouble about the future that we're only imagining might get happen. God's grace is sufficient for only today's battles and struggles. We can't have grace for tomorrow. In reality, when we worry about tomorrow, whether it's money or health or our children or grandchildren, we end up crippling ourselves so we don't have the required energy we need to survive and do what we're supposed to do today because we're out there. And the enemy of, of our soul is Satan, and he is a liar, and he has the goal to tempt us to corrupt our minds with his lies. He's been doing the same thing since Eve in the garden and using the same technique, getting her to doubt the goodness of God and the love of God. Would God really allow you to go through something like this? Ladies, we cannot allow our minds to think on things that are not true. Thoughts like, God doesn't really love me. If he did, he wouldn't, you know, that's a lie. And you know from scripture, you can quote, you have to preach to yourself. The gospel and the scriptures that you are familiar with and keep telling yourself the truth and not listen to the lies. Even the lies that he loves to tempt us with that this sin is okay because God wants you to be happy. So that's okay. I mean, these are lies that he just trips people. Oh, here's the good one. Here's one that always wins. Everybody else's husband is amazing and wonderful and godly and perfect, but yours. You know, and people really believe that. Other people's lives are so much better. He's such a liar. Anyways, whatever is true about God and his word, these are the things we're to be filling our minds with. Whatever is honorable, thoughts that are worthy of respect or reverence. So our thoughts should be uh, dignified, not just thinking about the temporary mundane. Uh, these are, there are so many wonderful biographies of men and women of faith who have been through unbelievable storms of life. And reading about them, they can be such an encouragement to you and to me. Whatever is right, the idea is that things are, are righteous, things that God approves of. So think about those things that are consistent with his holiness. This requires a great deal of fighting against our culture because we live in a society where right is wrong and wrong is right. So we have to discipline our minds so we're not sucked in or calloused to the evil that we're just bombarded with. And then he goes on to say whatever is pure, it speaks here of moral purity, again, completely opposite of our culture. We all have to make an effort to not allow what we watch, what we read, what we listen to <clears throat> in music or any other uh, thing that we don't fill our minds 
but things that are contrary to purity. Because it's a battle of the mind. It, you know, it impacts how we dress as women, whether it's modest or the world is dictating uh, how we dress. So there's so much practical application of thinking on what's pure. Also think on what's lovely. This is the only time this word is used here in the New Testament. It could be translated sweet, generous, gracious. It speaks of having beauty of character. So we are to be thinking of ways to be lovely in the way we act, in the way we help others. And whatever is of good repute, another only used here in the New Testament. And it's things that are spoken about and praised by God. So we are to think about scripture and things that elevate what God elevates. And then Paul kind of summarizes it all up. Whatever is excellent, worthy of praise, and all. Think on these things. They all seem to run together, but this passage begs us to answer the question, and you have to answer it for yourself, what is your mind occupied with? Only you can answer that. Is it thinking about things that will inevitably defeat you spiritually and bring you down, and get you upset? Thinking that makes you believe uh, you're defeated by your circumstance and there's no way out? Then you are not obeying the scripture. Go back to the Psalms, Psalm 1. talks about the man who's blessed, the woman who's blessed, is because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season. If we occupy our thoughts and keep redirecting our thoughts back to biblical truth, we can experience what Isaiah, same thing, really, Isaiah the prophet and Paul. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So as long as we live, we're going to be bombarded with sin in this culture. We're going to be bombarded with our own flesh and our own struggles with the sin of worry. But that doesn't mean we have to give in. We can repent and retrain our mind to start thinking on the things that are good and lovely. So just like you'd have a plan of action, you know you're tempted, let's say, with covetousness so you don't spend eight hours at the mall, right? You know, you, you have a plan of action of how you're going to try to deal with the sin in your life, and we have to be prepared for this sin of worry and what you're going to do the next time it's a struggle. Next time you have a scary doctor appointment where there's no money, and it just goes on and on. Will you bring every thought captive to Christ? Will you recall the truths that we've just been looking at and start thinking on scripture so that you correct your sinful thoughts? So it really does come down to whether I will choose to obey or not. And we must obey what we are commanded. It isn't enough to just think the truth, but uh, we are exhorted to dwell on it. And you know what? Paul's life demonstrated to these Philippians what it looked like to practice these truths and to obey them. And that's where he goes next in his letter. Obedience, though, ladies, is what brings us peace. Let's face it, sin is what brings us anxiety. We continue in sin patterns. Everybody in our household may be miserable because of our sin patterns. And we're not, we don't have peace. We don't have joy. So it's in obedience to the word. So what needs to change in your thought life? As I said, we can have victory over the sin of worry, and then when we blow it, we repent and take steps to think thoughts that honor and please the Lord.
So what is it that you allow to dominate in your thought life? Is it filled with the TV, with news, with politics? That's nauseating. Uh, what, we, what we allow in our thoughts directly affects whether we're going to obey this passage or we're just going to ignore it. And the cost of failing to obey will be a life characterized by fear and worry and conflict, disunity. It is a high cost indeed. And it's not worth the peace that we lose by failing to obey. Paul goes on to say, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received I, you have received your concern, or revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lack opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I love Paul. I want to be like Paul. I know how he says how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, growing hungry, of having abundance, suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was thrilled with the gift that the Philippians had sent to him. They had lost touch with him. They had wanted to send one earlier but couldn't. But they had finally connected. And Paul was thrilled uh, with their gift and is thanking them. And whether he wants them to know that, that whether he had gotten their financial help or not, he was content. He had learned to be content, something that trials and difficulties had taught him. Paul, by nature, like all of us, would have struggled and with covetousness. So how did Paul learn to be content? How did he learn that? Well, God allowed Paul to experience so many different things, and he had learned the secret of being content. Uh, it, he didn't learn it from a class he took. He didn't learn it from a message that he heard. Rather, it was his determination to be obedient and devoted to his Lord. He had experienced humble means, prosperity, uh, suffering, all kinds of things. Paul determined to be devoted to the Lord and doing his will, and he had come to know that and experience that it doesn't really matter whether you have a little or a lot. Um, the pursuit of obeying the Lord was what really brought joy and meaning. And amazing that Paul had been content uh, either way, lots, little, prosperity. Uh, prosperity often destroys Christians and all people because it's never enough. You always could, would like some more. And here's another one of Satan's big lies. <clears throat> if we only had more money, my life would be so much easier and I would be a happier, nicer person. Contentment can never come because you accumulate things. Jesus warns us over and over again about that. We had to set our mind on the things above and our future treasures that we're laying up in heaven by our obedience in our time to live here on this earth. Outward circumstances did not add to or take away from Paul's contentment. This was true only because of his devotion to the Lord. So whether he was in the shipwrecked in the ocean, spending 24 hours, or with stoned and dangerous hardship, exposure, weakness, all these things, uh, Paul earlier said, for momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. Well, the Corinthians, that truth. So, Paul depended on Christ for strength. <clears throat> Though he had many challenges, he says at the conclusion of the section that he can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not a verse that Paul says, I have all power, you know, I can fly. This is not a verse for people who haven't studied for a test to quote and claim, um, so they'll pass. This is not a verse for an athletic event 
um, to win. That's not what it's about. Rather, Paul is stating that he has learned whatever circumstance God brought into his life and allowed him to endure or experience, he found he could depend on Christ to give him strength to handle that experience. That's what he's saying. So Paul had learned that uh, as he followed the Lord, no matter what, God gave him the grace and sustained him. So if our focus is to live in obedience to him, then we can be assured that when we are weak, his power is strong, and we can be content with him and what he's given us in our life. Whether we have good health or poor health, money, too many bills, wonderful children, challenging children, it is Christ alone who can strengthen us for the task he's given us to do. And as time runs out, I'll just quickly go over this whole area of giving because it was such an important matter to Paul. He was so thankful to the Philippians and their obedience in giving to the Lord. It's not that he needed the gift so much as that. It showed that they were obedient. They, it was fruitful for their spiritual lives because when we serve God by giving to others financially and of ourselves, it produces spiritual fruit. It causes us to have a greater love and concern for individual people and invest in their needs, and we reflect the character of Jesus. So, their giving pleased God. And then we have this very famous quote that people also like to quote, who maybe don't manage their money well. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But the context here, you realize, is Paul making this statement to the Philippians, who were very, very poor, and gave very, very generously out of their poverty to meet Paul's needs and the saints in Jerusalem too. So these people had met Paul's need, and Paul is saying, God is gonna supply your need as well. How amazing it is that it's not out of his riches that he supplies, but according to his riches. So if you are faithful and generous with the Lord, he will make sure that your needs are taken care of. The Philippians had given sacrificially out of poverty. In return, God would supply all their needs. So as we close this, chapter with a whole lot to apply. Uh, first of all, let unity characterize your life and relationships. Lady, we need to be forbearing and gentle, not demanding everybody do everything that we think they should our way. Secondly, will you deal biblically with your sin of worry? Are you just going to continue living that way and worrying about everything all the time? You're miserable. Everybody around you is likely miserable from your worry. I mean, you have to have a plan. Will you have a plan? Will you commit to rejoice in the Lord always? Will you commit to be gentle? Will you trust your request as you give it to the Lord and allow his peace to rule in your heart and mind? And as soon as it goes away, go right back to that place of time with him. What do you, um, what do you allow to fill your thought life? Are you going to be obedient to the things we've been taught? And have you learned contentment? Or is there always just one more thing that you have to get in one more color? Is doing his will your priority in life? Will you believe his promises to strengthen you and sustain you, whatever he allows to come into your life? Have you learned to be a generous giver? Your contentment with very little or with very much will enable you to have joy in meeting the needs of others. Let's pray. Father, your word is so practical, and it hits home to right where we live, because every one of us here struggles with obedience in this area of our life, Lord. We fail you, and we're not ashamed. You know, we, most people wouldn't admit there are sins of adultery or 
uh, other sins, but nobody seems to be ashamed or embarrassed that we sin regularly by worrying and not trusting you. So I ask that you would help us to be better equipped, that we would speak truth to ourselves, that we would take advantage of truth that we can listen to to help keep reminding us to renew our minds, to think biblically and not allow the pressures and the, the tight squeezes that you put us into in this life, Lord. I pray that it would be the tool that would draw us to find our only contentment is truly in you. In Jesus' name.